It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 219 for November 21st, 2010. Recorded November 19th. Has your email account been used by a spammer yet? No, I don't mean just having email sent so that it claims to come from your address, but actually using your email account to send spam. If you routinely reuse passwords, and this hasn't happened to you yet, now would be a very good time to change your passwords. That is, if you want to prevent it. Within the past 30 days, I have received spams that actually came from the accounts of people I know or people who have my email address in their contact list. In many cases, these spams address me by name because the spammer was able to obtain this information from the victim's contact list. This is annoying. Some of the messages have served poisoned links. Others have just been standard spams. I have discarded all of the messages without following any of the links, except for those that I opened with a specialized tool that doesn't allow the site to take over my computer. So how does somebody get your password? Well, there are several relatively easy ways. You might use a simple word that's easily guessed, and by easily guessed, I mean it's a word that's in a dictionary. You probably already know that passwords such as 123 or ABC or password are simply stupid, But so are passwords such as pusillanimous, mustard, or let me in. That's because a brute force attack can simply go through a lot of passwords until it guesses yours. The second possibility is that the victim has logged on via an unencrypted Wi-Fi link to an account and somebody nearby plucked the password out of the air. I wrote about that back on September 26th you want to check the TechBiter Worldwide website for the September 26th program. There's a link to it from this week's program. Third possibility, the victim uses the same password at multiple sites. This is probably the most common way. As soon as any one location is compromised, and some places have exceedingly lax security, the crook then has thousands or perhaps millions of passwords and usernames that will probably work at other sites. If you have a favorite password that you use for multiple sites, then I encourage you to change it now. It's possible to use a favorite password in combination with a prefix, an infix, or a suffix that you modify from site to site, and this produces a reasonably strong and secure set of passwords. Let's say you create a base password, fizzy, the number eight, and the word beans, fizzy eight beans. You'll use this at various sites, but with a combination of other characters. When you register for a site, you would always use the same base passwords, Fizzy8Beans, and combine it with a set length prefix, suffix, or infix that's always placed at the same location, so you don't have to remember where you put it. Okay, so for example, for TechBiter.com, you would have TE Fizzy8Beans, or Fizzy TE8Beans, or Fizzy 8 te beans or Fizzy 8 Beans TE. TE, of course, is TechBiter, the first two letters of TechBiter. 
You might use the two additional characters I've suggested here. You might use three, you might use four, you might use more. The key is to make the pattern something that you will remember and something that you can reconstruct when you get to the website. Some other possibilities that I thought of, you might use the second and third characters of the domain name. So for TechBiter, you'd use EC. Or you might use the first character of the domain and the first character of the top-level domain. So TechBiter and COM, that would yield TC. Or you might use the last three letters before the top-level domain for TechBiter. That would be TER. Although this process will create reasonably strong passwords, passwords for accounts that you consider important, read that as banks, those passwords should be both strong and unique. No passwords should be used for multiple sites. So for your own benefit, don't reuse passwords. If you've ever wondered how the creators of The Washingtonian Magazine, Businessweek, Lenswork, or Fitness Magazine, or hundreds of other publications put their publications together, the answer is simple. It's in design and in copy from Adobe. These applications combine to speed the process of creating newspapers, magazines, brochures, and catalogs because many people can work on a publication simultaneously. And although you might think of this combination as something that only huge corporations would use, it can help in any situation where multiple people have to touch a publication before it goes to the printer. So even smaller companies will find that they can get things done faster if they take the time to learn some new tricks. The overarching goal of the InDesign InCopy workflow is to free designers from having to interpret marked-up page proofs and to allow editors to see instantly both how their words look on the finished page and how they fit on the finished page. In an earlier time, creating something as simple as a newsletter might require several iterations involving writers, editors, typesetters, and proofreaders. The writer would create an article, an editor would modify it. Then the typesetter would create a galley proof that allows the designer to determine whether the copy was too long or too short. In addition, typesetters invariably found errors that the editor had missed and corrected them, but also created new errors of their own. After several rounds of this, the copy would be good enough to go back to the designer to be pasted up on boards. Any errors after this point required an X-Acto knife to correct, and when the boards were finally ready, they were delivered to the printer who made the printing plates. Many of those steps have been eliminated by electronic typesetting. PageMaker, Ventura Publisher, Quark Express, Frame, InDesign, those programs are responsible the addition of InCopy, which has been around for several years but is fine-tuned in the CS5 version of Adobe's Creative Suite, advances the entire process. The TechBiter Worldwide website this week has some illustrations from Anne-Marie Concepcion's introduction to InCopy at lynda.com. Adding InCopy to the production process may initially be a challenge because change is always difficult, and InCopy makes fundamental changes to the way things are done. In a traditional workflow, the publication designer is responsible for the layout of the brochure, newspaper, newsletter, or magazine. When the initial layout has been set, printed copies or PDFs are sent off to authors, editors, and copywriters. These people provide the text for the pages. The designer adds the text and sends another round of pages to the editors who mark up the copy and send it back. Several iterations of this process ensue, and others are brought into the mix as needed, including fact-checkers and proofreaders. 
Eventually, the publication is ready for press. InCopy makes a fundamental change, and InCopy can be used in two primary ways. There are more similarities than differences between the two methods, and either substantially streamlines a publication's workflow. First, there's the layout-based process. A designer using InDesign prepares a publication document on a server. All of the other participants use InCopy to edit the file simultaneously on the server. One InDesign user and any number of InCopy users can have a publication open at the same time, but a checkout, check-in mechanism ensures that only one person may be working on a given story at any one time. To InDesign and InCopy, a story might be something as large as a chapter of a book or as small as a caption for a single image. The alternate method is called the assignment method. It's the one that's actually preferred by Adobe. Stories are assigned to individual users, which gives the designer slightly more control over which associates are working with any given story. This is the method that is required if all of the users don't have access to the server where the publication is stored. People who may be working from home can receive stories by email or other means, work on them, and then return them to the designer to be checked in. According to Anne-Marie Concepcion, who works with companies that are converting from older systems to InDesign and InCopy, the production process usually takes 50% to 80% less time start to finish when the new system has been fully implemented. You'll find a quick tour of the InDesign, InCopy combo on the TechBiter Worldwide website. To illustrate how the process works, I created a directory on my desktop computer to play the part of the InDesign server. I then set up a demonstration publication that was provided by Adobe. After installing InCopy on a notebook computer, I connected via the network to the server directory on the desktop. Because I hadn't yet prepared the document in InDesign for use with InCopy, InCopy could open the publication, but no stories were available for editing. Part of the setup process is creating a username for the InDesign user and also for each InCopy user. So having prepared the document in InDesign for use by InCopy editors, I found that I could no longer directly edit stories in the publication. That makes sense. It's because anyone who edits a story must first check it out so that only one person can work on it at any time. As the designer, I wanted to make stories available to the editors who are working on the project. Stories may be prepared one at a time, as you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, or multiple stories or all the stories in a publication may be prepared simultaneously. When the stories have been prepared to be edited in, in copy, the editor sees a symbol at the top of each editable story. To edit a story, the editor simply selects it from a list of stories eligible for editing and checks it out. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, which is to say over in InDesign, the designer sees that an editor has checked out the story. The InCopy user sees a pencil icon that indicates the story is currently open for editing on his or her computer. The editor can work in Design View, which is particularly helpful for fitting copy to the available space. This capability alone is probably responsible for a considerable part of the time savings that's enjoyed by InDesign and InCopy users. InCopy has two alternate views. One is called Story View, which is somewhat like the old-fashioned word processor on a fixed-width type system. The clear display is ideal when the editor is viewing spelling and grammar and not looking so much at design. Between Story View and Design View is an option called Galley View. 
It looks like the story view, but it accurately represents how lines break and where hyphens will be placed. Most InCopy users switch from one view to another as their needs change. When the InCopy user has finished with the story, it needs to be checked in. This is equivalent to saving the document in InDesign. Then the designer's screen displays a new icon that indicates the editor's work is complete and that the InDesign view is now out of date. To fix that, the designer simply refreshes the publication. Following the refresh function, the designer can see the changes that the editor made. So the bottom line for InCopy, well, I think this is just a new way to say freedom. Five cats. Designers want to spend time working on the design, not being typists who have to interpret arcane editing marks from editors. And editors would prefer to just make the changes to publications without having to explain what changes need to be made to the designer. The InDesign InCopy workflow frees both designers and editors to do what they want to do. For more information, visit the Adobe InCopy website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, are you still paying for cable TV? Well, so am I, but I'm not sure why. I really don't watch television, although my wife does, so I guess that's one good reason to keep it running. When I watch a TV series, I binge-watch. For example, I heard an interview on NPR's Fresh Air with Victor Garber several years ago. He portrayed Jack Bristow on the program Alias. He made the series sound interesting, so I ordered the DVDs from Netflix and watched the entire series, six years of it, in a couple of weeks. The advantage of doing this is that you don't lose the thread from week to week or during the summer. Everything is compressed. I've done this with several programs because I really don't like wasting my time sitting in front of the television while it spews advertisements. Netflix, which has both DVDs and streaming video, and streaming video sources such as Hulu, Apple, Verifone, and Oodle, along with some others, are making it possible to enjoy more entertainment at a lower cost. At greatest risk, according to a recent research report, are the basic cable subscribers. SNL Kagan says cable companies lost nearly three-quarters of a million such subscribers just in the third quarter of 2010. Hulu launched its Plus service this week, 8 bucks a month. You have access to current programs from ABC, Fox, and NBC, along with a few other options. The overall look for cable TV would probably seem to be cloudy at best. Be careful what you say online. A Chinese woman will spend a year in a labor camp because she forwarded a satirical Twitter message that urged recipients to attack the Japanese pavilion at the Shanghai World Expo. Does that sound terrible? Well, what about this? A medic who posted a disparaging comment about her boss on Facebook has been fired. Dawn Marie Souza, a medic with American Medical Response, was fired after she posted a less-than-complimentary comment about her supervisor on Facebook. The ambulance company that Souza worked for fired her, but the National Labor Relations Board says the company's action was unwarranted, so this is eventually going to play out in court. But getting back to China, Cheng Jinping was accused of disturbing social order because she forwarded a message from her fiancé that mocked those who held anti-Japanese rallies in several cities last month. Chang added, Charge, angry youth, to the message that she forwarded, ironically suggesting that protesters do more than just smash Japanese products. 
So as a result, Chang will spend the next year in the Shibali River Women's Labor Camp. Her fiancé says that Chang has begun a hunger strike in a bid to serve her sentence in a camp that's closer to her home. More than a year ago, I said that Norton Internet Security was the clear winner, and at that time, that was true. Since then, Microsoft's operating system-based security system has come a long way. I've always said that security should be part of the operating system, and that may be the case. If not now, then eventually. When it comes to desktop computer operating systems, Microsoft owns the market. And Microsoft tends to expand into other areas, taking over functions that have been provided by smaller companies. In the 1980s, I was a semantic fan, but then the company's bloatware made it impossible to use the security applications. As of 2010, the Symantec offerings are very, very good. Good enough that they're what I use on a daily basis. But Microsoft is moving forward. The latest anti-malware application is delivered by a Microsoft update and proves to be a very workable application. And it's free. Now Microsoft Security Essentials, or MSE, is becoming a threat to third-party providers such as Symantec, McAfee, and Trend Micro. MSE isn't currently the best security application available, but it may not have to be. It may simply need to be good enough. It's easy to use. It's essentially part of the operating system. You don't have to do anything special to use it. And as I noted, it's free. I'm not yet ready to dump Symantec's products. After all, they're still licensed to me for more than a year. But I can foresee a time when the provider of the operating system is also the provider of the security suite. No program next week, as usual. No TechBiter Worldwide on Thanksgiving week. So, in addition to other things that you might be thankful for this coming week, here's something else. The extra peace and quiet you'll get by not having TechBiter Worldwide. Be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.